Hey everyone, I'm Mohini. And I'm Farheen. And we're not your average aunties. We're here for some gupshup and to speak about our lives and our views about the world. These are our thoughts in this moment. Welcome. For most of my life, anything related to money has caused me to feel a great deal of stress. And a few months ago, I reached out to ask if you, Mohini, would do a little workshop or a talk uh, with me and a few of our close friends to share some advice or tips about managing money, because in the many years that I've known you, I've always admired your ability to manage your finances. And I've reached a point in my life where I really want to heal and transform my relationship with money. I learned a lot in that little mini workshop that you did with me. I I was so touched when you asked me that because money is not a really a topic we've explicitly discussed together, despite knowing each other for more than 20 years. And it's actually a topic that often doesn't get talked about in society. There's so much taboo, like sex and politics and religion, because it's, it's so fraught with emotion. A lot of us, if not most of us, have a lot of emotion tied up in money. And I think what we're going to talk about today is money, wealth, Uh, worthiness, like there's a lot tied up to money. Yes. And I think for a long time, I've thought about money as coins and paper, you know, this very literal, logical, practical entity. And I thought, I'm just not very good at managing it in my life. Actually, what we uncovered together were um, our deep-seated family dynamics around money, stress and trauma, the the conflicts in our family, there was an iceberg below the surface about our relationships with money that either made our lives um, easier or more difficult. I've recently acknowledged that there has been trauma associated with money in my life, and I'm only just beginning to name it in that way. And it's deep and it comes up when I least expect it. The other day, I was tallying some receipts for some joint household expenses. And I noticed this growing anxiety in me, you know, the sensation of butterflies in my stomach and tension in my chest. And it was intensifying with each receipt that I was adding to the grand total. And I realized that I've had this feeling before, but I think I ignored it in the past. This time I was really aware of it and I wanted to understand it better. It was a bit confusing because I'm currently employed and I earn plenty, like enough to cover my, my share of household expenses. But I guess my emotional response was rooted in fear of not having enough. Or I was worried about getting into an argument with my spouse about the money that I had spent. But in the seven years of marriage, like we have not argued once about money. I feel really fortunate that you know we communicate quite openly and lovingly about everything and we discuss money and negotiate and we share costs and we make plans. But luckily, we never fight about it. So I was confused. I was wondering like, where is this coming, this anxiety coming from? But then I remembered that money was always essential, like a major source of conflict in my parents' marriage. You know, my parents came to Canada as immigrants in 1970, and as was and is the experience for many newcomers, they struggled to make ends meet. My dad didn't have post-secondary education. Like, I think he finished high school. I'm not sure. I think he did. So his job choices were limited, And he took a job that he hated in order to pay the bills and take care of the family. You know, my mom was raising me and my siblings. And my dad stayed in that job that he hated for over 15 years. He was usually working like the graveyard shift overnight. Um, There were five of us in a two-bedroom apartment for the first like nine or 10 years of my life. 
Um, I remember my dad would clip coupons and he'd go to five different stores every week to buy the uh, groceries at the best prices. Um, And he eventually lost his job, you know, which caused a great deal of stress in our family. Like he was the sole breadwinner. And shortly after losing his job, he was like formally diagnosed with manic depression and he wasn't really quite able to return to full-time work again after that. He worked many different sort of odd jobs here and there, but um, there was definitely a dramatic shift in his ability to, um, to be the breadwinner. So my mom, she had a teaching degree from Pakistan. And like when my father had lost his job, she needed to upgrade her credentials so that they were recognized in Canada, even though she went to a British university in Pakistan, she still had to go through the process of ensuring her degree was recognized here. So she got a job teaching and then she became the primary breadwinner, ultimately, really until she passed away. So I think about the consequences of that in terms of like gender roles and South Asian culture. But though my mom was the breadwinner, all of our assets, like the car and the house, it all remained in my dad's name. So all of this became a source of of real tension and pain over the years, like over decades. Uh, My siblings and I started working really early, like at age 12 or 13, to alleviate some of the pressure on our parents to help cover, cover some of our own expenses. As a family, we rarely took vacations. We didn't renovate or upgrade anything in our home. You know, at that time, we probably didn't, we didn't talk about it. We weren't really highly aware of what money meant in our lives. It was just how we lived. But looking back, I, I see that there was really never enjoyment with money. It was just about getting by. And I guess I learned that money is hard to come by, but it doesn't last. And that, you know, it can be used terribly. Like it can be used as a weapon to cause tremendous conflict in a marriage that was like my, my childhood, my early years. And then I left home at 19 with really no financial management skills. And I relied on my part-time job and student loans to pay rent and groceries while I attended university full-time. It's also when I was given my first credit cards. Like it's amazing how on every corner of campus during Frosh week, students are offered credit cards with zero understanding of what that could mean for their credit scores or their financial futures. You know, over the years, there were times when I was counting coins to buy my meals. So I realize now, like, no wonder I was feeling stress and anxiety then. But what's really struck me is how that feeling of stress and anxiety has remained constant over time. Like even when my employment income increased, Uh, but I'm beginning to sort of uncover that history and realize that those early experiences, they really laid this foundation in terms of my relationship with money. And they've had this lasting impact, like regardless of the changes in my life or my income. Some of those old habits and beliefs, they've been difficult to shake. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? Yeah, I... I think um, I saw a lot of conflict between my parents about money because they had two different relationships to money and wealth. I think both my parents grew up in poverty, but I think my mom uh, certainly, I think, experienced double whammies around poverty, poverty, and she was a girl. I don't know where in the birth order of seven she is, but, you know, always got hand-me-downs. She never got new clothes and everything was stretched, like, because of how um, they lived. And But my father, I think, his mom, my grandmother passed away when she was giving birth. So she passed away in childbirth when my father was two. And I think there were already three other siblings. So my father, being the youngest, got shipped off to another uh, village, to our extended family's village, where he was surrounded by lots of girl cousins and family who adored him. So he grew up with this sense of abundance, whether that meant 
wealth, but certainly I think it was wrapped up in a lot of goodness. He had like all these adoring elders, cousin sisters. And so he probably got the best part of the meals. He got the best maybe of a lot. So even as a child watching their relationship to money, my father would spend, he, I mean, he worked two jobs delivering pizza, doing welding uh, and working in police canteens and auto manufacturing places. But he had absorbed through his childhood concepts of enjoyment, even while really struggling and working two jobs at the same time. Whereas my mom, she was always pinching that proverbial penny all of the time, because she had not experienced abundance, whether in um, material wealth, or even emotional wealth from her family. And so they that was a constant conflict. But I think what I remember was on Fridays, um, my parents, when they went grocery shopping, allowed one treat for me and my brother, whether it was like a box of donuts or a box of flakies or some <laughs> um, sweet treat. Oh, <laughs> and we had sweet. to, <laughs> yeah, we had to make that last the whole week. And oh my gosh, we were fastidious, my brother and I, about like half, half, 50-50. So there was this um, attention and tug of war about spending money. And also what I learned was that my parent, actually, we probably spent for our household income, all of my dad's earnings and my mom worked full time as well, but we sucked that away. So at 14, we bought a family business. So what I deeply absorbed was at least some sense of cooperation between them two or the value of enjoyment plus saving will yield good results because then we bought this family business and um, at some point, maybe five, six, seven years into having the business, my mom had a series of car accidents and she was had the option of not going to back to work. My father was in some way able to support two households because he moved away to London, Ontario. So again, by the time I'm like 20, um, I had gone off to university and I was also in a business studies program and had co-op terms where I could earn my own money so that I didn't have to rely on my parents to save. And in those days, there was no RESP and they hadn't, you know, like proactively saved for my higher education or my brothers, but I did understand through my family history that going into business seemed like a very practical thing to do. So sometimes I, I've joked with friends, whether that's the Gujarati genes or like, as we're known <laughs> to be um, quite the business people. But for me, of course, I got into business school and went, this is garbage. I'm not interested in this corporate <laughs> um, exploitation and promptly went into the nonprofit sector. But from my parents, along with that tension and that fighting, that I absorb scrappiness around money and also some possibility of enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Both of those got mixed in me. Right. Which actually allows for balance, right? Mm -hmm. So an, um, the ability to save and plan and be strategic with money and the ability to enjoy it, which is why I turn to you for insight and wisdom <laughs> because that's what I aspire to have in my life. Yeah, I, I still struggle with it, but a lot less so because I really absorbed my mom's frugality. But it's also about worthiness as women. And so I think that's, I think there are these, these concepts and emotions are so multi-layered. Mm -hmm. very multi-layered because I know when I started out in university again I rejected the corporate world and went into the nonprofit world and was definitely making two-thirds of what my friends who went into the corporate sector made however I made it a choice again with my family's you know teachings and 
absorbing a lot through osmosis and explicitly I wasn't going to have a car. I was going to walk two kilometers. Oh, that proverbial walk two kilometers <laughs> in the snow to my job. Um, I walked to work. I knew that I was, I made less, but I'd absorbed ideas of how to stretch that. And I, and it's amazing. I made less, but I went on three week international holidays and I saved for RRSPs and even back in the 90s. And I think another thing was I read this book called The Wealthy Barber uh, by David Chilton way back when. It's such a classic. And I adopted a couple of principles. And, you know, that that also stood me in good stead. Yeah, another thing that we've talked about recently is to not only acknowledge that our relationship to money is loaded with emotion, but you know, in the process of looking back to recognize that there are bigger like macro level systemic issues impacting everybody. I joined a group, uh, a collective of young people um, at the resource movement, folks with class and wealth privilege who are committed to learning, unlearning and thinking about the redistribution of land, wealth and power and why that's so important. One of the first things we do at Resource Movement is tell our money stories. And we don't do this as a way of bragging or to be competitive, but as a way to um, connect with others, to learn about ourselves, and again, to voice things that we never talk about and to practice coming out as wealthy. If we want to take action around redistribution of wealth, land, power, and our privilege, we have to understand how we or our families have acquired wealth and our stories around it. So it's super, super powerful to demystify and to actually own our privilege. In fact, most people think that they are middle class and we're not. And there is this idea that um, if if we acknowledge the real wealth we have, then somehow we're bad. And there is this super aspirational story of North America, Canada and the US. It's like the land of dreams. It's like the immigrant success story. And you can build wealth here. And the truth is, is the story of these lands is exploitation, colonization, and enslavement of peoples in which we are all still benefiting. I am still benefiting of that. There's a reason why uh, all the produce in the grocery store is so cheap. It is the labor and the exploitation of migrant workers and racialized workers and highly gendered, and folks with precarious status in this country, people who are shipped back off to their own countries, and often coming from countries where um, Western colonial powers have exploited and extracted all the wealth from there, so that those folks look to other countries. And that's the story of um, South Asia, the uh, you know, where our ancestors come from. Britain's, you know, colonization and extraction of all the resources there had our families look to other places to imagine something else. So it's it's very um, circular, like the exploitation, it just continues. And yet we want to invisibilize that. And so thinking about these things for myself is really important to really understand, like, even my family's um, purchase of that business, um, there was a legacy, a long legacy of how and why we were able to do that. And then I, I discovered in thinking about it, that our business, which was a small motel, could only operate because of the exploitation of gendered labor. The women who were working to clean the rooms, you know, cleaning is a highly gendered profession. It's very low wage profession. 
And so as part of my money story, I had to acknowledge like, yeah, like as much as I call myself a feminist to understand that women have been used to even create um, the wealth that I have. Um, not only my families, you know, like we went and cleaned the motel rooms when we were kids and, you know, me, my mom, my dad and my brother, we all did that. And it's not to discount all their blood, sweat and tears, but it was also aided by others who in our society, their labor is not uh, valued. So whatever um, wealth or privilege or comfort I experience these days has that long trajectory backwards. Yes. So how do we understand that there is a bigger picture and like to zoom out from that micro focus on our own struggles and financial stresses, you know, to recognize the, the, the oppression experienced by other people, you know, by those that came before us or to recognize those that have suffered where we have benefited. And I think this is not an either or proposition. And you and I definitely, either through our own lived experiences or with others, we really know the pain of that individual suffering. And when class and wealth privilege insulates people so much from that daily uh, reality and the ongoing narrative or values that we have are really tied up in either or thinking in capitalism. And that's what it seeks to do. It seeks to separate us, to divide us, and enter into these competitions of oppression and marginalization, when in fact, capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy are the foundations of wealth accumulation and distortion. And so I'd like to read a quote from Edgar Villanueva, who says, the system of capitalism by its nature uses wealth as a tool to divide, control, and exploit us. And unfortunately, even the white knights of the money world, the institutions of philanthropy and ethical investing can perpetuate trauma and spread what I call the colonizer virus. At the core of this affliction is a sense of dividedness or separation. It correlates with fear, distrust, scarcity, and blame, all of which arise when we think we're not together in this thing called life. And when those afflicted with this virus devalue some forms of life and certain kinds of humans, they can control and exploit them. And I think that quote really summarizes how far we have distanced ourselves from each other, from the planet, other beings. We've just lost sight. He makes those connections that when we think money is just about us or our families, then how short-sighted are we? but also that we don't have a culture of care and we don't feel a collective responsibility for one another. And that's destroying us, actually. And we're not even having public discourse that I think um, very wide and sustained levels around any of this, the our political institutions, legacy media, and just ordinary conversations are still perpetuate this idea that some are deserving and some are not. And especially during this pandemic, I mean, none of this is new. It's all been prior to the pandemic. And in fact, our very present was created on exploitation. So of course, I think during a pandemic, of course, exploitation is going to continue. In fact, it gets exacerbated in terms of who is doing frontline work, who is still doing precarious work, who's still benefiting. I mean, there are a handful of mega corporations in Canada and the US that have profited from the pandemic. 
literally profited. Some people Mm -hmm. are profiting. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't have a living wage for people. I cannot even believe that that is debatable, that we fight over a minimum wage. This province, Ontario, has cancelled basic income pilot projects, did not commit to the previous government's, you know, $15 an hour, I think minimum wage. And who even gets to be a part of that conversation about a living wage? I mean, if it's economists and politicians, you know, if it's not driven by largely, exclusively, perhaps even, by people most impacted, what are we doing? We cannot even commit collectively to people's humanity. Mm -hmm. Well, the system is so old and so deep rooted. I guess I'm talking about capitalism and all of the things associated with it, credentialism, Mm -hmm. um, you know, meritocracy, that somehow, if you can afford to go to school, and if you can afford to get that higher education, that in itself doesn't make you employable. Like we know the numbers of PhDs that are struggling to get work, especially internationally educated newcomers and so on. And if I think about my own employment, for example, a majority of the jobs that I have held are as a result of people that I knew who put in a good word for me. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a farce, this notion of meritocracy, or if you work really hard, that somehow that means you're going to reap the rewards in terms of employment, status, income, uh, whatever these external measures of success are. It's really um, true for a very select few. It's incredible the number of people that are turned away from opportunities because they don't have some letters after their name. Mm -hmm. Or because of their skin color, their gender, their sexual orientation, our perceived gender or status or a whole host of things, ability, just having so many barriers. This conversation is allowing me to realize that whatever my experience has been, or my family's experience has been with money is not just about us and our skills and knowledge and ability and handling money, that it's difficult to deny the experiences that we had of racism, my parents' struggles to find employment. There were so many systemic barriers that were impacting our ability to survive financially. And I think I'm acknowledging that probably for the first time. Uh, really, it's it's easy for me to think of, um, to understand how systems impact other people. But I've always removed myself from that narrative. And I think that's done me a disservice. And so to acknowledge that I am somebody who's been part of the system and has been negatively impacted by it is helpful because it helps me to remove the self-blame from my relationship with money. And I think that's really important for so many of us who think that we're just bad with money and we should be better at it to recognize that in many circumstances, the cards have been stacked against us. Mm-hmm. Not to um, alleviate ourselves of responsibility mm-hmm. um, in terms of where do we go from here and how do I do things differently now, but it takes some of the pressure off and a lot of the guilt and shame associated with money to acknowledge that there are bigger systems at play here that play out in my day-to-day life. The meritocracy concept obscures intergenerational poverty and all forms of oppression. The structural and systemic barriers, which will always or always seek to keep some people, large groups of people, collectives away from power and privilege. And those of us few who sneak through with the or with the abiding so vehemently by the meritocracy myth or bootstrap, and we manage to kind of get up to some level, then absorb 
these ideas that we, we did it ourselves. And that is so false. And so the, the systems that be will tokenize us. They will tokenize us as people of color, as black people, indigenous people, and or women, like whoever, and to say, look, they made it. So that means you need to uh, subscribe to this is the land of dreams. Anybody can make it construct. And then we all keep attached to that and chasing that. And then judging and shaming others who aren't able to reach those heights of material success, whatever that means. And so it is so much about uh, separation. And I see that in my own family as well, that meritocracy myth. And I think in our community, there is um, there's a lack of willing to see how some of us do well and some of us don't. And the invisibilization of how people are struggling. And then all the larger society does is trot us out as model minorities because we've learned how to play the game and we don't rock the boat. We don't talk about white supremacy. We don't challenge because we benefited because we swallowed the pill um, and achieved our own success. Again, often on the backs of our, within our own communities and absolutely of others. I've been thinking about my teenage stepchildren and their relationship with money. I'm, I mean, I'm hundred percent sure that they're not going to hear this episode. Um, so I'm going to speak freely. I don't, they don't really know about this podcast and I'm sure if they did, they would have no interest. <laughs> so my partner, he pays child support and their mom independently manages all of their finances. Um, and the kids are incredibly well provided for. You know, I can get a little bit judgy about how much excess they have. They have the best of like every technological device and not just one, but many multiple 4K TVs and gaming consoles, custom-built PCs, tablets, the latest iPhones. They wear like the trendiest clothing and sneakers. God forbid their sneakers get dirty. Like, so, uh, you know, and I'd say like, they're like the trendsetters at their school. They've traveled with their mom. So in these material ways, like their lifestyles seem like the complete opposite of what my life was at their age. But I realize it's all so subjective. They often don't realize that they have privilege because they're sort of focused on those things that are that they think are lacking. You know, for example, they happen to live in the basement apartment in their grandparents' home. I mean, it's a sizable home. It's a sizable basement. But, you know, to them, having their own home with their mom would be an indication that they are doing well. So when the kids are, are with us, which is, you know, every other weekend, my partner and I, we try our best to teach them like the value of a dollar and not to take things for granted, but it's tricky because we have our own anxiety about money. We don't want to pass that on, that fear and anxiety about not having enough. At the same time, we want to help them like, understand privilege and to cultivate some humility and generosity. So it's this fine balance. And I, when I think about why these material things seem so important to them, of course, there's this societal pressure, there's peer pressure to fit in and, or, or to stand out, you know, to be the best or to be successful. That essentially means to own and possess these material things, to have material wealth and excess. And they're bombarded by those images and those messages from family, from peers, and from like big brother social media that essentially is like tracking our every internet search to bombard us with advertising. So it seems impossible to escape, you know, but I've, I've been thinking like underneath all of that, I think it, because each of us wants to be seen, like we want to be heard and recognized. We want to be valued. We know, we want to know that we matter. So there's this insidious insecurity, you know, that underlies all of the excess and accumulation it's rooted in scarcity thinking, this hoarding mentality as well. Like, oh, there's only so much to go around. So we have to just keep it all for ourselves and that we have to hold on for dear life 
is everyone out for themselves. So I wonder, you know, if we invested in building this deep sense of self-worth in ourselves and in every person and an understanding of our interconnectedness, could that be what might turn things around? You know, but of course, how do we do that when we can't collectively agree on basic income or living wage? Our notions of well-being just need to be so beyond an annual salary or a daily hourly wage. It is how are we all bound up together? And what does well-being really mean? And not it doesn't just mean having a certain kind of home and having certain kinds of healthy food. Um, but it's like, you know, the, this principle of equity and not equality. What do people need and can they get everything that they need to thrive? Thriving deeply, spiritually, yeah. emotionally, physically, mentally. My gosh, I'm getting like chills in my body just thinking about what kind of world that would be. Can you imagine? Yes, that would be amazing. And I do believe that if we can imagine that, you know, then anything is possible. That vision of a caring society where no one is left behind, where everyone can thrive, like that's what we want. You know, I, I've noticed that sometimes when we talk about the systemic barriers to well-being, you know, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, it can feel overwhelming. You know, we, we might ask ourselves, is change even possible given how deeply rooted these barriers are? And there's so many people that continue to like benefit from the status quo. Um, I'm trying to remind myself that there's power in one, like that I can make a difference. And I think that as I heal my own relationship and traumas around money, you know, as I examine how I consume and make different choices, I'd like to make better informed choices in terms of how I spend my money or what I do with it. You know, that I, I, I'd like to believe that the, those my individual actions will have a greater impact beyond my life, beyond my family. Yeah. And I think a real part of that is also acknowledging our inherent worthiness and deserving. You know, earlier you and I, in a whole separate conversation, we we're talking about our worth, you know, so the labor you do at your full-time job, the labor you do in other places, what is that worth? And I think especially as women and as brown women, we have been definitely socialized with um, through racism and sexism that we're, we're not worth what we're worth and women in general. And again, so many studies to say, we will not ask what we are truly worth because patriarchy, right? Like just full stop patriarchy tells us that we don't deserve, we're not valuable intrinsically, inherently. And so we, we're also learning that as, as we give away and be in right relationship, our own inherent worthiness as well. And it's hard because it's an ongoing struggle and decision to affirm, for me, my worthiness in this world. I also deserve, along with everyone, deserve not wealth in the material sense, but well-being, safety, um, good things, good things, whatever we mean. And that does not mean excess for me. I've never had a car. I don't want the latest TV. I don't have a TV. I don't want the latest cell phone. I don't buy into any of that nonsense. But uh, what is right relationship with money? So shedding some amount of guilt around having, I think it's been hard for me, as, especially as I've in the last 10 years had very stable, secure income. And I'm balancing that guilt with action and being in right relationship and constantly thinking about giving. Now let's talk a bit about what it means to be in right relationship with money. Like in your life, what does that look like? I know we've spoken about um, giving or charity. I think I've committed at this point to probably 
monthly donations, more than $250 a month. And I'm, I need to keep, I want to keep growing that. It's also about thinking about how to give away chunks of um, the wealth I have right now, instead of just when I pass away in my will, there are three charities, nonprofit organizations named where my wealth will go. But, you know, I need to do it now because the need is now. And also, I I consciously think of like giving this money away without any uh, sense of the good I'm doing. That's why I don't talk about it as so much as donation and giving. This is redistribution. It is not giving. It is not my goodness. It is not my nobility. It is not any of that. This is my responsibility. And I believe that 1000%. Aside from money and giving money, I've joined a Facebook group recently. And I went off Facebook and came back onto Facebook just to connect with the community in my building. And one of my neighbors who's become a friend shared a Facebook group where you don't barter, you don't trade, you just give away you post the items that you want to give. And then people respond saying why they would like it not to necessarily make a case. But if there's 25 people who want a pair of shoes, it's either a lottery system or the person giving it away decides how they would like to actually choose the one person or family. And I recently had a rug to that I didn't need. So I posted it. And this woman responded. And I tell you, it's been such a beautiful connection. She shared part of her life story or her reality right now and what how that rug was going to enliven her home. Anyways, we had such a beautiful exchange. To me, it was a rug that I no longer needed. And it took on a renewed value for her and her home. And then I had a sound system that I didn't need anymore. And then this other woman shared, oh, she's, she wants to dance more, especially as we're more isolated and more inside. She wants to dance more and that this, you know, sound dock is going to allow her to dance more. And so it's kind of about the items, but it's like about connecting and these people live close by and I hope to see them or connect to them again about something else. But like, what a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's about the experience, not the object. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I love yeah, that. And it's really about sharing because it's, it, and it's about not consuming. We yeah. need to collectively grasp uh, consumption and mm. the obscenity of the kind of consumption we do, the amount of consumption. I know it sounds pretty facile, like, you know, can I think twice? Is this a need? Is this a want? How can I make do? How can I construct something? How can I share? Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And I want to acknowledge the fact that we are all, we've all been raised in this culture and that shifting out of this thinking, it does take effort. You know, it's not like there's the good people who are um, reusing, recycling, yes. reducing, and then the bad people who are consuming. Like we are all actually consumers yes. and we were raised to be, and it's so valued in our capitalist culture. And so I guess what you and I are potentially doing with this podcast is a bit of a call to action for folks who are listening to consider what this means in their own lives and really for the preservation of our planet to think about and do differently. And I think also um, it's led me to keep thinking about not just redistribution of um, like monetary wealth, but what does it mean to be in relationship with my heart, with my spirit and my body? So um, connecting with organizations, showing up at um, solidarity walks, um, kindness, just looking at people who are street involved in the eyes, recognizing their humanity, not making judgments about people and where their class and wealth, privilege or lack of privilege, why that is um, to disrupt when classes 
ableist sentiments are shared. All of that is tied together too. How do I show up with with generosity in this world? I don't know, but I'm asking and I'm thinking and I'm interested in talking with you and everyone else who is also interested. Yes. Like I hope that this will be one of many conversations. We want to co-create that community of care that we believe is possible. You know, I think as our episode comes to an end, I think we're reaching um, that point. I want to reinforce what we spoke about earlier, that each of us has a part to play. We can start with our own beliefs, our own attitudes and behaviors. For me, that it's meant starting to heal emotions around money and also taking some practical steps like to better manage my finances. You know, when we did that little workshop a few months ago, you offered some really great suggestions. And I've also been thinking about some of the lessons that I've learned in life and some of the tips that I might offer. We'd like to do that now and offer our listeners in case they find them helpful, some clear-cut, practical uh, suggestions, ways of thinking about money in your life. And I realize like some of this might sound obvious or basic, but I think it's important we don't take financial literacy for granted. Each of us is in a different place. We each have a different financial situation and it changes over time. There's a lot of information that I wish I had when I was younger that I only acquired as an adult. So but something that I've I've tried to practice in my own life is to have a, a clear picture of like my income, my expenses, and my spending. What's coming in and what's going out. Many of us may be what I call like leaking money unnecessarily. For example, you know, are you paying for this huge cable bill, but you actually only watch like Netflix or YouTube? Or this happened to me. Like, have you ever signed up for a free membership with the intention of like canceling it at the 30-day mark? You know, that's when they start billing you only to realize like you've missed the deadline and it's like been like years, months or years. And you go, Oh my gosh, what am I paying for? I'm paying for this monthly service that I don't even use. So I try to look at all of my accounts like once a month to make sure that there's no surprises and uh, make little tweaks around my monthly spending. And you and I also spoke about paying off debt as soon as possible, beginning with those accounts that charge the highest interest rates. There was a time, you know, 20 years ago when I was, relying on credit cards to cover my basic expenses. You know, that's, that's real. But if you're in a position to we're earning enough money, like monthly to make ends meet, then some great advice that I received was to really think long and hard about using a credit card. I've learned that it can be a great safety net for emergencies. Otherwise, it can feel almost impossible to pay off because of that never ending accumulation of interest. You know, the banks love me. <laughs> They're making a lot of money off of um, interest and they keep offering cards. You know, you may keep getting these offers for credit cards or even increase your credit limit, but you can always say no. And then of course, there is the practice of saving of like putting money into separate savings accounts every month, regardless of the amount. Um, And it will begin to grow. And Mohini, this is something that you and I have talked about that's been really helpful, you know, and we've spoken about like the wonders of technology and setting up those automatic like monthly withdrawals. So you can make the decision once and like, you don't have to think about it again. The money's just automatically going to go off your paycheck into a savings. And I've always admired your ability to like to pay your daily expenses, but then also to save up for like home renovations or amazing travel. Even if one doesn't know what I'm saving for or what a goal might be. It's great. Like, as you said, if, if one knows, um, oh, I want to save for this course, or I want to save for this trip um, to identify that. But even if there isn't something just stretch myself in terms of my finances of putting aside that money, no matter what, whether there's a goal or no goal. And then it just accumulates. It's, you know, some people call it for a rainy day or for emergency. Um, But I think it's just, I think we can also think of it as play money or, yeah, whatever our heart desires, because we don't know when something might strike us as a, a desire to do. 
or to shift careers, or maybe we um, lose our work. And that's a very real situation for so many right now. And so building that practice at least allows us to have a, a bit of a cushion to weather a storm or to pursue a desire, a joy. And then there's the realm of investing and growing wealth and planning for retirement and so on. You know, this is the stuff I wish I'd learned about when I was much younger. I'm really just beginning now. I think a good financial advisor really helps us because they're not emotionally invested. And so they can offer us simple practices as well. And these days, you don't even need a financial advisor. There are so many planning tools to meet whatever budget. Because I think one of the barriers is folks have often said to me, oh, I don't have a lot of money and I don't know if I can talk to a financial planner or advisor. And that that's really fair too. And yet there are tools maybe online or I'm just so glad we had the conversation because again, all of this is so mystified and whatever little I know that I can, that I shared with you, I'm so glad it resonated because I'm just learning as well. And we're all just learning uh, together. And it's really, yeah, it's, it's also sharing our knowledge. That's also a part of wealth to not hoard our own knowledge. And yet, I sometimes don't think my knowledge is valuable. So we cycle it back to self-worth and knowing our own worth. And yet I was so grateful that you asked because it was like, yes, I, oh, uh, affirming I do know something. Affirming I knew something that I didn't know I knew. Yes, absolutely. Well, that one workshop, Uh, really shifted the trajectory for me this year around finances. So I'm very grateful for the, what you would consider little tidbits of (laughs) advice or guidance have had huge impact on my, not only my finances, but my mental health because they are so intertwined. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with me. And also now with our lovely listeners in the podcast universe. And now, as usual, we'd like to end by leaving you with some questions for reflection. What is your money story? How does it inform your current relationship with money? What is generosity to you? How do you express generosity? How do you cultivate self-worth and recognize the inherent worth in others? What does economic justice mean to you? And how could you join or continue to support economic and social justice wherever you are? Thank you for listening and reflecting with us. We trust that you'll continue to have great conversations with the people in your life. Join us again, because we've got lots more to say. If you'd like to connect with us, email us at notyouraverageaunties at gmail.com. We all belong and matter. This world needs all of us to continue creating a more just world for everyone. Bye for now.